Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Get ready, Ohio. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is coming to the Buckeye State. And to kick things off, you can get started with $100 in free bets as an early sign-up bonus. Plus, when you sign up today with promo code OHIOFD, you'll be all set when FanDuel goes live in Ohio. Then you can bet on all your favorite teams in all your favorite sports with $100 in free bets. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Ohio, this is your chance to get in on the action. Join today with promo code OHIOFD. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. 21 or older and present in Ohio. Bonus issued in non-withdrawable free bets that expire seven days after FanDuel accepts its first real money sports wager in Ohio. one Unique user identity verification required. Offer ends on the go-live date. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. At Lowe's, we're your go-to for great gardening values every day. That's why we've lowered our price on select bagged mulch, now starting at just $2.88 a bag. Mulch helps prevent weeds and retains moisture. And when you put it down around trees, shrubs, and flower beds, you'll see how beautiful it makes your outdoor space, just in time to welcome back family and friends. Shop online and pick up in-store. Lowe's, home to the best part of summer. Selection and product availability vary by location. While supplies last, U.S. only. Excludes Alaska and Hawaii. Some cars are comfy on the inside, but don't have power on the outside. And some cars have the horsepower, but none of the comfort. I used to think there weren't any cars that were the total package. But that all changed when I got my Honda SUV. It's rugged and sophisticated. And right now, Honda has deals on the entire Honda SUV lineup. CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, you name it. So if you're looking for a car that's the total package, the only place you'll find it is at your local Honda dealer. Hurry before they're all gone. It's still funny with Tim McCusick. This time it's the offense. I know there was some confusion on my post, and we'll get to that. This time we're breaking down the offense. Uh, Ken McCusick, how are you doing? Life's good, Josh. How about you? I'm doing. You know what? I'm doing better now because I think we're past all of our podcast hosting issues that we've been having the past few weeks. That is good to hear. I, I don't think there's any podcast host that doesn't have some difficulties at some point. A relatively new medium. A lot of these things happen. We really appreciate our listeners for being patient with us and getting this uh, and getting this fixed. Right. And uh, I, I don't know where we'd be without Josh in terms of his ability to, to solve these sorts of problems. So the uh, podcast, and though it's been around for a long time, it's getting like more and more mainstream, which means there's more and more companies out there doing it. 
So we've been using one of the new companies, and uh, they just aren't quite there yet. So now we're with the standard company that all the big names use. If you're, if it's a big podcast you've heard of, they're being hosted by by this company that we're now with. So we're excited. It's going to bring stability. Anyone who, if you weren't getting your uh, podcast in, if you were getting it in iTunes and the past couple episodes didn't show up, that should all be straightened out this week or you should start to get them regularly again. If not, you can always just go in and hit unsubscribe, hit resubscribe, and that'll refresh everything for you as well. So it should make sure that the links on Russell Street Report work. The links on Birdland Sports is going to work for now on. And then uh, as well as, of course, whatever podcast app you use, all those links will now work. It'll download immediately and all that stuff. We're in good shape right now. Okay. Thanks, Josh. So, But uh, speaking of, I don't know, now that we're straightened out, the Ravens are still figuring things out. So let's get to the Ravens because we got on this a little bit with the defense um, as far as Lamar, the, the Lamar Jackson situation. And we're going to get to that on this podcast. But first, let's look at we got past the Bengals, which means we're still alive. So yeah. let's look at these tiebreaker situations. Yeah, so a lot of people have been asking me online on Twitter about what what's the Ravens tiebreaker situation. So there, there's also a split camp on this, just like Jackson. There's a lot of people who don't want to hear anything about tiebreakers yet. They just say, well, let's see if we beat the Raiders first, or let's see if we beat the Chargers first, or let's see if we beat Atlanta first kind of thing. Well, uh, you know, and that, that you're really, even, just don't read. <laughs> and that you're even being nice to those people, because a lot of those people, it's not that they, let's see what happens. It's, I don't want the team to win because I want Harbaugh out of here. They, they, some of them have an agenda like that. Others, they don't really like tiebreaker talk because it kind of gets detailed and specific. And when you do that, sometimes it's difficult to understand. And so they, they are insulted even by the content. All right. Well, so I, I, what, I anyway, know, what I know is I went to ESPN and it told me that the Ravens have a 35% chance to make the playoffs. And it said that my fantasy team had a 25% chance of making the playoffs. Uh, that so, sounds, sounds too bad for your fantasy team. Right, right. So my fantasy team probably won't make it. Uh, the Ravens still are have a little bit of control, so why don't you lay out what's going on there? Sure. Well, they do have absolute control of their own destiny if they win out, obviously, from this point. Not obviously, but they do have, have uh, control of their own destiny if they win out. But but the uh, uh, there are six tiebreakers um, that you have to go through. Okay, let's start from a, at a higher level. The Ravens need to, to win the tiebreaker in the division because that's what's determined first to determine which team, and it would be of either the Bengals or the Ravens, advances to participate in other tiebreakers with the remainder of the AFC. Right. So a necessary but not sufficient condition of making the playoffs is beating the Bengals in the tiebreaker or, or beating them outright, one of the two. So when we say beating the tiebreaker, obviously we, we're only really concerned about what happens in the event of a tie. That's kind of a, a preset notion of this is you, you both teams finish with the same, re- same record. Obviously the Ravens could finish with a better record than Cincinnati, and that might be their easier path to the playoffs, by the way. But they, uh, they also could uh, 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 finish tied, and that I think is still pretty darn likely. And if that happens, then we're going to need to go through a complex set of tiebreakers to find out who wins it? And I just want to spend a, a couple minutes on that right now. Yeah, because you're right. The Bengals, we could have a better outcome at the Bengals, but that would mean the Bengals would have to probably lose three games, and they don't have the hardest schedule left. No, they they don't. And they, you know, part of the part of the what the Ravens have to hope for is for the Browns to beat the Bengals, and so we'll we'll get to that with one of these steps here. Let's just start off with the head-to-head because I think everybody understands that the head-to-head is the first thing you look at when you're breaking a tie between two teams. And we already split. Split that. Already decided it's a push. So we can move on to the second uh, item, which is divisional record. So the Ravens currently have a 2-3 and divisional record, and the Bengals are currently 1-2. and The Ravens have only their Week 17 matchup against the Browns left. The Steelers have two games against the Browns, obviously home and road and a Week 17 matchup with the Steelers. Now, here's where it could get kind of frustrating for Ravens fans. Either team can win the divisional record tiebreaker, but that's the best chance for Cincinnati to win a tiebreaker with the Ravens. And the reason is that they have a very favorable schedule layout going into this. The big thing is that their Week 17 game against the Steelers Maybe a rest game for the Steelers if they are locked in on seed. And I'll even put it a step further. The Steelers, if they are the locked in three seed, 
could well control their own destiny with regard to which team they'd rather face in the playoffs. And I will guarantee you, 95% of Steelers fans would love to play the Bengals as opposed to the Ravens in the playoffs. So if it could well come down to Week 17. If the Steelers lose, they play the Bengals in the playoffs. If the Steelers win, they play the Ravens in the playoffs. So they'll be, they could be disincented to help the Ravens in terms of, of what they uh, uh, are doing in Week 17, not just indifferent to helping the Ravens where they might just want to rest their players and, uh, and do it. But it's a, it's a very positive schedule situation to have a good team that you're playing or top team you're playing in week 17 because that play that team may be laying down at that point for right. resting and you, and it's a really nice schedule advantage to have that the Bengals have it this year yeah that's uh so we got to hope that the Steelers struggle a little bit so that, that they're fighting in that last game yeah they have to be playing for seeding and, and ideally they should have to be if they they're playing for a bye in the last game if they if they need that to get a bye we can be guaranteed that they'll play hard right right because you would think they should be in a standard play hard game they should beat the Bengals I, I, they, they certainly would believe that's the case, and I, and I agree they certainly have owned the Bengals in recent years. All right. Uh, so what's next, common opponents? Co- common opponents is next. Now, there's a shortcut to doing this, and people always look at common opponents and they get confused by it, and sometimes they give up on the process at this point. With divisional opponents, it's really simple. Look at the uncommon opponents. So there's only two games which the, uh, the Ravens and Bengals do not have in common. The Ravens have beaten both Buffalo and Tennessee. The Bengals have beaten both the Colts and the Dolphins, who the Ravens won't play. Both teams are 2-0 and against their uncommon opponents, which means against common opponents, they're going to have the same record. So that, that tiebreaker has already been decided. It's already a push. Don't strain yourself mentally to try and go through that. And if, if you, when you have this show up in the future, it's the team with the worst record against non-common opponents that wins the common opponent tiebreaker, and that's the much easier way to do it. So anyway, for, for, for that one, no chance that that decides the tiebreaker. All right. Uh, conference record then. So a conference record is next, and uh, a conference record is a big one for the uh, intra-divisional tie, uh, sorry, interdivisional tiebreakers where, you, where you're going against the other uh, teams in the conference. But in division, it's, it slips down behind the common opponent's tiebreaker. Um, very important there, uh, it's uh, the Ravens, have uh, a advant- an advantage in conference record, and they can win this tiebreaker, but they can't lose it. Now, why are we in that position? Again, the shortcut you do is you look at the NFC games and how those records have gone. And the team with the worst record against the NFC, uh, NFC wins the conference record tiebreaker because all other games are in conference, of course. So the Ravens are currently 0-2 against the NFC with two games left against the Falcons and Bucks, And the uh, Bengals have already finished their NFC schedule and are two and two. So the the worst the Ravens can do is tie this. It is possible they could lose to either the Falcons or the Bucks. Still end up tied with the Bengals, and that would mean that uh, that the Ravens would win the tiebreaker here at conference record. Uh, if if this was if this was consulted, if the if the Browns didn't win it by divisional record, or or if either team didn't win it by divisional record. So conference record, uh, the Ravens can win it. They can't lose it. Unfortunately, it's very difficult to imagine a meaningful divisional tie, meaning one where the, the, both teams are at least nine and seven, where the Ravens don't win both remaining NFC games. They're among their easier games. And in fact, the Atlanta game, I think most people would say, is really the pivotal game to uh, making the playoffs this year. So uh, while the Ravens have the advantage here, I don't think they can they can use it to win. All right. Um, all right. So then it would come down to strength of victory. Strength of victory is next, and so that's a, that's a little bit of a weird one. Um, that's the sum of the wins. Uh, it's also a percentage in one-loss ties, but it's the sum of the wins plus a half point for ties uh, of all of the teams that you have beaten during the season. So if you look at it, the Ravens have uh, uh, currently an advantage on this. They have 19.5 wins. Now, each of the Bengals and the Ravens have each beaten each other, but the, but the teams they have, they have not beaten – are sorry the teams they have they've beaten otherwise are the Ravens Buffalo who has three wins Denver has four wins Pittsburgh seven and a half wins Tennessee with five wins for a total of 19.5 19.5 Cincinnati currently has 17.5 wins with wins over Indianapolis Atlanta Miami and Tampa Bay so 
a lot will still be determined down the stretch. The Ravens' big advantage clearly comes from the fact that they beat the Steelers earlier this year. The Ravens still have two big opportunities and also tough games. If they can beat either the Chiefs or the Chargers, that will do huge things for their strength of victory uh, position. And similarly, the Bengals have the Chargers and the Steelers on the docket still. And if they can win either of those two, and as we mentioned, you know, with the potential laydown game in Week 17, that's their big chance to catch up um, in strength of victory. So uh, definitely uh, some difficulty for the Ravens to get in uh, if uh, if strength of victory is consulted. And their big hope is to beat either the 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 Rams, sorry, yeah, the Chiefs or the Chargers down the stretch to uh, to secure that. Right. Now, hopefully this is all worked out before all of these this tiebreaker stuff, but the last step is strength of schedule. And I'm guessing that's still being worked out because games are still being played? Yeah, games are still being played, and, and the there's only two. It's all driven by the two non-common opponents. Okay. So we, we go back to that, and strength of schedule is exactly the same except for those two. And unfortunately, the, the uh, Bengals have two playoff contenders – who are the non-common opponents. That's Miami and Indianapolis. And the Ravens have the Bills and the... Oh, come on now. Don't do this to me. Okay, the, the Bills and the... It's a South team, the Titans. So they only have one playoff contender among the two. And it's likely that the strength of, of schedule is going to work out in the favor of the... of. Uh, uh, the Bengals, if this continues. So if it drops the strength of, of schedule, which I think is about a 15% chance if tiebreakers are consulted, strength of victory, I'd say, is about a 60% chance. Uh, and, the, and the divisional record is about a, uh, I'm sorry, the common opponents and divisional record, but both about a, a, I'm sorry, the conference record or common opponents, both about a 70% chance of being consulted. Um, you really have um, uh, a likelihood that if it gets the strength of schedule, that it's going to be won by the by the Bengals. Now, but all of this math that you've been doing is just for us head to head with the Bengals. There's That's a right. lot, there's, there's other teams that are trying to fight for those wild card slots at all, like the Colts who have gotten really hot, mm-hmm. and uh, even the Titans are in there. The Dolphins are in there. There's other Texans. teams fighting for that. Texans, yeah. Let's get focused again on the Ravens. We talked about Lamar Jackson a little bit on the previous episode. But let's get into him and let's grade him just like we do Joe Flacco. Let's look at uh, Jackson's ample time and space. And I want to know how you really did this because he moves quickly. That's right. So you, there, there's a little bit more judgment that goes into it. But it's usually if if he stay, if he's able to stay in the pocket for three seconds or if the, the, the offensive line allows him to do that, then he's got ample time and space. Jackson uncreated ample time and space a couple of times for himself, but that still goes as an ample time and space. One of them was when he hit Lewis in the back of the helmet with the with the ball. Right. That's that's his that's his on him, but it was an ample time and space opportunity. Another was when he ran to the outside on a boot um, that, that was a naked boot, and then he ran directly at Carlos Dunlap, who was the unfooled outside defender. And and that it 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 was an ample time and space opportunity, but it was something Jackson did, I think, to freeze Dunlap. Uh, and and create more time for him to make the decision on the throw. In any case, uh, that that counted as an ample time and space opportunity as well. The Ravens gave uh, there are 21 dropbacks in the game. The Ravens gave uh, Lamar ample time and space on nine of 21, fairly normal number. Uh, if anything, a little low at 40 42 percent. Uh, sorry, 43 percent. Uh, Jackson had an inverted game though, so he was five of nine for 46 yards and threw his only pick when he had ample time and space. That's 5.2 yards per play. Um, with ample time space, he was 9 of 11 for 111 gross yards, and he also allowed two sacks for 12 on those 99 net yards, 9.0 yards per play. Now, the typical is, a, is about 4.2 yards per play when you have when you don't have ample time space, or that's right. been Flacco's typical over the years. So this is an this is an exciting component about Jackson's effort that I don't think too many people are talking about is how he performed under pressure. And there's a lot of definitions, of course, of pressure out there, but at least from an ample time and space perspective, I think that was one of the real positives to draw is that he, he wasn't tremendously phased by the pressure. So, some is, ways, yeah, so does that mean, so, all right, that we keep talking about the two, the two camps. So the, the pro Lamar camp would point this out as, look, our offensive line is all banged up. The advantage for the quarterback situation, would Lamar's the better one with a struggling offensive line. Is that what ample time and space is showing you? 
in these numbers, Ample, at least for the Bengals game? The, the ample time space, is, it's just a slightly below average number. It's certainly nothing I would rely on statistically to be accurate. I mean, I think the, the offensive line had a decent game of pass blocking, but it, 9 of 21 is 43%. That's slightly below average um, uh, ATS percentage. Lamar did a great job when he didn't have ATS, and he did a pretty lousy job when he did have ample time and space. So when they gave him a good pocket, too, he really didn't didn't use it very effectively. Right. Gotcha. So, so if you want both camps, both camps have some fodder to take away and, right, and right. decide how they want to apply it. Right. The the not Lamar, I'm not going to call it an anti-Lamar, but a not yet Lamar camp would say, look, he doesn't know how to stay in the pocket. Yeah, and let's address that for a second, because I hope those are the two camps, the not yet Lamar camp and the we love Lamar camp, you know, and, and we love everything about him. If those are the two camps, I'm kind of okay. If If there's just somebody out there that – He's already decided that Lamar's not an NFL quarterback. That he's not going to last. And he, I mean, get over it. At least root for the Ravens, you know, and root for Lamar to play well. You know, uh, I I, th- I very much see it as politics. That when no. you get online, everyone bickers and and everyone tries to make it look like the other side is anti. When really, yeah. no one's anti. We just have different opinions uh, of timing. And I think I think it really is a big not yet camp. Which is also part part of that not yet camp is is a maybe Both never camp up. that okay. that isn't quite ready nothing not sure if Lamar can make the jump yet from from college right would be what I would say all um, right well there's, there's also the, the pro Flacco group in there which which fairly enough you know points out that Joe Flacco has 21 TDs and and eight interceptions now in his last 14 or 15 yes. games I mean you've got a good alternative on the bench which makes it all that more um, uh, of a question in terms of how popular your backup quarterback is. Right, yeah. right. There's a definitely there's a pro Flacco, anti Flacco, uh, thing out there, and I'm sure there's a race component too. But I don't really want to get into race and sports. No. I try to avoid that side and pretend that doesn't exist. Yeah, I, I certainly hope there's not. But let's let's, let's we're not going to talk about it. Right. We'll just move on. And I, in my, I'm in the not yet camp, and what always concerns me watching him on Sunday was this sidearm throw and the way he was just some dangerous passes. How did it look when you watched on film? Yeah, I mean, there are about five throws where he really he really threw dangerously. And I'll point out one where he made the throw, and it was one of the really big throws of the game. But if you look at it, it was a very high-risk throw. And I really I think you have to really kind of kind of break it down a little more and decide – whether or not it was a good one. But it was a throw to Mark Andrews that converted the third and seven for a 19-yard gain. He had thrown an interception previously with an underneath linebacker in exactly that spot. He actually threw the interception to the safety, but there was an underneath linebacker in that spot as well. On the other side of the field earlier in the game, he threw a tipped ball where the underneath linebacker leaped and tipped it. The, the, the throw to Andrews, the Ravens needed the 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 uh, completion to, to convert third and seven, but if they got an incomplete, they still would have been in the ball game at twenty one twenty one and had a chance to uh, to to go on and and win the game. Uh, so a high risk throw was not as warranted. Now Jackson made an unbelievably elite throw on the play. He rolled right, threw the ball perfectly into a very tight window over the linebacker and right to the spot where. Uh, Andrews what and he did it on the run and you put all that together that's a very difficult combination of things and I kind of liken it to praising a blackjack player for hitting 16 and getting a five it was the perfect result but did he really necessarily make the right decision well you'd have to you'd have to look at underneath that what the count was at the time in terms of the of the remaining deck and you know there are other factors that would that would go into blackjack in terms of deciding whether or not 16 is a correct uh, is a is a hit or a stick but but in any case, it, it was it was, a, it was a point where it didn't really you can't really ascribe all of that to Jackson other than he made a perfect throw. He did also reduce risk on the play in one significant way by allowing the corner to clear Andrews before he uh, threw the ball. So I really like that risk control element. But but then the other risk control element, I kind of you know he'd already had some problems in the game with uh, with interceptable balls, and it's it, it was a great throw. I can say that. But it's it's kind of like. Maybe a thirty point three, a three, a thirty foot three pointer that goes in that you say no, 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 yes when the ball goes in, uh, that you know it just does not make it the right decision to throw that ball. But fantastic pass, great to see, incredible as a fan, and then you look at it on tape and you really wonder was it great decision making or not? All right, um, 
Was it just me, or did he, does he always run to the right? Like at least his big runs were to the right. Uh, his it, we're talking runs from the, runs runs runs, or are we talking about his where he rolls out? Uh, either one. Okay, so let's let's start with the rollouts. I saw some. Jackson really appears to have the same problem as most right-handed quarterbacks do in rolling left, and you would think he would have less. The reason is that when he when he rolls left, he's got the the, the speed to reset his feet and get over there. But he he often leaves the pocket late, which means he's he's making an escape move to get away from from a linebacker or an edge rusher who's who's got him who appears to have him, and so, then that leads to a fairly close pursuit. Gotcha. So and then so, his body's all turned. His body's turned, and he's got to he's got to reorient himself, which he has the same difficulty as really all right-handed passers do in terms of getting his feet reset and throwing the football. Now we haven't seen that much of Jackson doing exactly that so far, but he had he had trouble throwing on the left side, uh, as I saw a scattered uh, diagram of his uh, passes, and and you know I'm thinking about which those were, and there definitely was some problems in terms of his ability to roll left, and it's normal for a right-handed quarterback. I just at some point, I think it will be better for him, and he'll have the ability to reestablish pockets on the left side, uh, given what his gifts are. Right. Um, the Bengals clearly were the a good opponent for him to go up to. He was able to manage the clock the entire time and eventually get uh, get the win as well. We even got to see a little bit from him as far as a comeback drive. Yeah. So those were all good things. Um but how much do we have to keep in mind that it's the Bengals and be ready for this week that it's the Raiders, an even worse team that he'll be playing with? I mean, some. I think I do think circumstances are pretty much ideal. It's, if you had to pick a time for Joe to be injured, you'd pick this. And you'd say, okay, maybe maybe we can get through these two games and maybe this, this is a good opportunity for Lamar to get some NFL reps. And it's certainly, in terms of a confidence builder, you know, facing this Bengals team uh, who is not – they're not as bad defensively as their as their historically bad run of 500 yard games has been, but but they they still are a great matchup for Lamar's particular skills and the the combination of the two runners the Ravens presented uh, the Bengals really breaking down their four man pass rush and and their ability to do what they've done to Flacco over the years. So it, it was it was it's a great pair of games for him to get his feet wet and to give him the best possible chance to get off with two wins and the Ravens to stay in the playoff race because of it. So uh, do I want to really project ahead to Atlanta in terms of what's going on or even project ahead to this week? It's dangerous to do so, but uh, I think it would be, um, it would be really great if Flacco could be ready to play in again in Atlanta, whether that's in a, in a starting role or in a relief role, if the team gets behind. Right. And what's, what's nice about this is that it's given Lamar more experience. It's given him uh, on the field uh, games with the linebackers, with the wide receivers. And it seems like he, I know he's still working on learning the, the play calling and all that, and that looked a little awkward at times during the game. But it seems like this team is behind him. It seems like he's a good leader on the field. Of course, it's a way easier to project all that when you're winning the game. Yeah, and that's that's true. It's going to be, some of the things will be more difficult when the, when the, when things are tougher, there's, a, there, you know, to give you an idea where, where Jackson's experience is probably hurting the Ravens. Now, a lot of people could have could have caught this, but the illegal formation penalty on fourth and one is something Jackson could certainly be the one responsible for calling that timeout. Now, if when I look at all the people who missed that, I don't blame Jackson entirely, but I would say that the, you know Peyton Manning probably catches that, and the and the Colts don't fall into the trap. Does, in, in his prime, Tom Brady probably gets it also. But but forget about Tom Brady. Forget about Peyton Manning. There's yeah. Joe Flacco. Uh, quite possibly not. But Joe calls a lot of of timeouts when things he see are not he sees are not right. So maybe. Okay. So um, he's, yeah, he he's he definitely. Yeah, I mean, there's a precedence there that he has called timeouts for it, things lined it, up wrong. For, for sure. And, and in particular with receivers lined up on the wrong side, which was the case here, you had a full house backfield. So that's something where Flacco never has that. Flacco never, I mean, his entire career, he's probably had less than 10 snaps True. of full house backfield. So I assume that all three of those players were in the proper position and knew where they were supposed to be. Well, then the two receivers, and, and one was Ricard, who was a tight end set up on the right side, and the other was Montgomery, who was a wide receiver set up on the right side. Both of those guys need to be on opposite sides of the line of scrimmage and covering the ineligible receivers covering the, the, the tackles and Montgomery knew that he had to be off the line of scrimmage from because he was, he was a yard back. He looked at Ricard. He saw his own line of scrimmage, 
But he's got to also be able to look to the other side and say, hey, wait a minute, there's nobody on that side. I should call timeout. Gotcha. So Montgomery, I should have called, called up. But then the blame goes deeper than that because the Ravens have probably 10 headset elves that are out there in terms of quality control positions and you know uh, game management positions and the offensive coordinator and all the offensive assistants and whatnot that are on the headset that have a chance to say illegal formation, you know, abort, abort, right. abort. Right, they're thing. watching from above, and yeah. and then and then Harbaugh can call that timeout from the sideline. He's the only one who could do that. Yeah. So so anyway, the, the any of the players could have noticed it, but this that's a case where Jackson was probably the Ravens' best shot to get it to get it stopped on field before it occurred. Montgomery might have been the second best chance. So uh, anyway, I I I think. If, if you're really looking for who was responsible for that illegal formation, which was a potentially very costly play in the game, didn't end up hurting the Ravens, but it, but it was a costly play. I think that play was probably Montgomery not being in the right spot, if I had to guess. Okay, that, that yeah, and I think that was the one on the that the announcers were saying maybe someone didn't uh, register properly with the with the judge or whatever. No, the, no? It, it wasn't. It was all, it wasn't it was all lineup. No, they had five eligible receivers on the field. So if you have a, if you have a sixth lineman on the field, that's when you need to, to – or, or you're changing up something about who's right. blocking. That's when you need to, to, to do that. But it, it, having Stanley Report eligible wouldn't have changed the situation. Or Ricard. Uh, uh, Ricard. They, Rick, they would have had to still – Montgomery would have then had to have been on the line of scrimmage gotcha. for, that, for that to be good if you if you'd done it. So anyway, it, it, there was at least one problem. The, 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 ones, the ways that had one problem, there were two receivers had to be on the opposite side. So my guess is Montgomery is probably the guy who messed it up. Gotcha. Uh, makes sense. He's the, he's new to the team and all. Sure. Um, all right, let's get – speaking of Montgomery, let's get to the running back situation because the big breakout star of this game, besides Lamar, who was – he wasn't really a breakout because we all were – everyone was watching for the game. There was excitement in the stadium because of Lamar starting. But the surprise to everyone was Gus Edwards. Yeah, so we talked about him a little bit on the defensive show, so I won't completely revisit this, but – uh, outstanding compliment to Jackson, straight ahead, power runner, uh, limited cutting ability. He did a little bit of side-to-side -side cutting. Reminds me very much of Leron McLean in terms of his running style with that low center of gravity, lots of yards after contact, and kind of a ponderous running, running uh, uh, cutting style. Uh, I thought it was just hilarious when he ran for the touchdown, ran for the two-point conversion, then he was on the kick team to cover. Right. That, that's a point where Rosberg probably could pick one other player and say, hey, take a playoff here. Uh, Edwards and, and get somebody else, but he didn't. He he had him cover the kick. It was oh, it was pretty cool. And I'm sure if you're Gus Edwards, you don't want to you don't want to be pulled. You're having the you're having the game of your life. Get me no, out there absolutely. for every play. Absolutely. But uh, even Collins looked good out there on Sunday. Oh, so Collins is probably going to lose snaps the rest of the year, and the reason is his style is very similar to Lamar in terms of he is is uh, happy getting to the edge and it really showed up on that on that TD which was a speed touchdown uh, to get to the pylon i mean he he was looked like collins 2017 in terms of bounce 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 to the outside and then let's see if you can catch me um, not really uh, liking inside lanes. I didn't think there were any inside opportunities to take that for a touchdown in, in that case. But uh, really used his speed effectively on that touchdown. That was a great thing. I, it's just unfortunate that because Lamar's style is also to go to the outside, I think that he's better complemented by an inside power guy. I think also we're going to see the Ravens use more three receiver sets to try and take advantage of opposing nickels the rest of the way, which means that I think the, the uh, Edwards and Jackson are the ideal backfield uh, duo and potentially without a tight end for, uh, for some, I'm sorry, with, with only one tight end for, for much of the remainder of the year. Right. And that, that one tight end is, we'll have to get to that one tight end next week uh, because it was interesting to see Boyle after we talked about on the midseason that we didn't see much of Boyle all of a sudden, he seemed to be Lamar's favorite tight end. Yeah, so yeah, he was out there for some plays, certainly provided some value as a blocker, but he also allowed half a sack in the game, uh, which which wasn't good. Right. So I, I, there were a lot of things I liked in the run game about how Boyle played. I, I don't like, I don't want to say anything really bad about him, but it was a mixed bag okay. for, for Boyle in this game. Gotcha. Uh, sticking with the running backs, what does this mean for Buck Allen? Yeah, Buck Allen, I don't know even where he is on the depth chart because the Ravens are going to have to start making some roster decisions. He played just five snaps had one carry for two yards, and unfortunately, you know, they have Dixon designated to return. He's going to come back, and I cannot believe the team is going to carry five running backs. Right. So 
I, I have to believe they're either going to defer the decision on Dixon at this point. It really seemed like Edwards was the obvious guy that was going to be cut, and ain't no way that's happening now. Right. And uh, Ed, Edwards and Allen seem to run the same style. I, I, Allen is more of a straight-ahead runner, but he's in between as a, as a slasher. And the same is true of Dixon as, as being between a slasher and a, and a pure seek-the-edge guy like, like uh, Collins is. Uh, but but both of them are guys who can you know they can run off tackle they can they can do the the normal runs we're used to where you bounce it once to the outside or you make one cut and you and you and you uh, uh, run and cut once with zone blocking for example I think you know Allen has just never really shown anything as a runner in his NFL career he's been a low yards per touch guy you know as a receiver he that's where he had most of his value this year so far. But his yards per reception are also very low, so I really question whether or not he's the ideal guy. Joe needs a checkdown guy. You want to have a back who, right. who can receive. And Dixon may be that the guy, honestly, that that the Ravens turn to going forward. Allen is in his fourth year, so the Ravens don't have any future option value in him. He's a, a, a unrestricted free agent at the end of the year. So unfortunately, I think there's probably a chance Allen gets cut during the last few weeks of the season at some point because I, I don't see the Ravens carrying five running backs. Right, and Montgomery also is supposed to have really good receiving skills. Yes, that's, could, that's, that he that's could a, be that checkdown guy as well. Yeah, outstanding point, and and, and he's one that obviously that I that I didn't include in that discussion, but he could he could well be the guy. You know, there are people who are saying Montgomery could be released as well. I think that would be a. Uh, Foolish thing given – I mean, this, the seventh-round draft pick is is a sunk cost. I'm assuming it's not conditional. So with, with Montgomery, unless they have a way to get the seventh-round pick back due to the conditions of the trade, I would say no, don't – you know, you, you, you want to take a chance on Montgomery who we think has more upside as a receiver than Allen. Right, so that puts him above Allen. Um, what's this mean for Ricard and his offensive use? Well, I think the, the, we're going to see reduced fullback use, which means Ricard may be deactivated for some games, but they still need him as a defensive lineman. So uh, the the fifth defensive lineman, which I'll, I'm never an advocate of going into an NFL game with only four, although the Ravens have done it in recent years, but with the fifth defensive lineman is always going to be him or Sealer. And I would think most games it's going to be Ricard because of what else he provides on special teams. He still covers kicks. Which is to me amazing. Um, he he you know is on the field goal unit obviously. He uh, he does the uh, defensive line as a emergency player only. Did not play in this game. But I think you're going to see a reduced fullback role for Ricard. And he was a very effective fullback. But just with Jackson in there, it doesn't make as much sense to have a fullback in there effectively. Jackson acts as an extra man you have to account for. So in some sense. He's providing a phantom block for you by sprinting out to one side or whatever and taking a defender out of the play. So um, I don't see as much use for Ricard in the offense going forward. If he, and what we'll see of him, probably be a tight end would be my guess. All right. And yeah, and Jackson's also not the type of guy who's going to follow a fullback. He kind of just That's true. makes his own decisions and it goes on his own. Yeah, J- Jackson wouldn't be. So the question is, do you want some of Edwards' straight-ahead running be- to be behind a fullback, or do you benefit from more of Edwards' straight-ahead running being against the nickel, where the other team will only have two offensive linemen and a- have a more spread defense with one extra cornerback on the field? And I think the Ravens will find they prefer that more, is that they'd rather run against the nickel than have a fullback going forward. Gotcha. All right, uh, let's talk about this offensive line like we do each week. And I was... Somewhat surprised to see Stanley out on the field with his injury yeah. concerns. Yeah, I mean Stanley's return just—I I can't say enough about it. I mean, just he kept getting hurt. It looked like he got uh, took a helmet to the ankle early in the game that caused him to miss some plays. He re- he left on three separate occasions in very obvious pain. Heroic effort. Uh, he, he was outstanding in the game from a play standpoint. Uh, he made 60 out of 64 blocks. He only allowed 1.5 pressures in the game. And he faces Michael Johnson, who's not a top-tier uh, pass rusher by any by any stretch, but somebody who's given the Ravens problems in the past. And also Lawson on some plays, who is a very good pass rusher. And he did a great job in this game. He just did a fantastic job. And I now look at what he's done. Is he got an A in this game. And his last grade since the Bengals game where he got a D in the first uh, matchup, since week three, he's got had A minus, B minus, A, C, B, A, A. And that's exactly the kind of trend line that I associate with his rookie year when he was improving for all those consecutive weeks in the second half of the season and was an elite 
left tackle at the end. Injuries have slowed him down these last two years, but his level of play I'm just really excited about. It's one of the things to be very positive about down the stretch for the Ravens. All right. Uh, how about Matt Skura? Well, uh, can we start at, stick, stick at left guard with Lewis first, if you don't oh, yeah, mind? yeah, of course. Uh, so he rebounded from a, a uh, tough performance. He got an F in the previous game to have an A in this game. His best, I'm sorry, to have a B in this game, his best performance of the year. So he faces some of those inside guys. And Atkins, of, of course, was himself and very good in this game. But the other guy who, who really had a, a big game was Billings. Billings gave Yonda a lot of trouble in this game in particular. Lewis did much better in terms of, than, than Yonda, in fact, in terms of uh, maintaining his blocks in the in the pass game in particular. He only allowed 1.5 pressures uh, in the game, one shared and one full. Uh, he missed four blocks. I had to look at every single one of his blocks again to make sure that I hadn't overscored somehow or made it better than it was. Um, but, but I did, um, and... I'm sorry about that. He has actually six missed blocks in the game, not four. But but still, um, outstanding game for him, uh, .84 per play. When I adjust for, for uh, quality of competition, he didn't have any highlight blocks, but quality of competition, he gets a B. Uh, just was really good at making his individual blocks and maintaining them. And one thing that he and Skura did together is they had a lot of double teams, particularly on Edwards's runs, where and also on some of Jackson's runs, where they got – Double team movement on either Billings or Atkins, and it was very impressive and very good. And neither of those guys is an earth mover individually, but to see them be able to move people with a double team is very useful when you have, a, you know, the need to open a hole to level two for Edwards and the desire to get Edwards matched up against a kind of a mediocre set of linebackers from a tackling perspective. So that that was very useful. The Ravens big game from Lewis, um, and uh, and I liked it a lot. All right, that's great. Now we can get to Matt Skura, the center. Sure. Matt Skura, also another good game. Had, had his second A of the season. He had a, he had a, uh, an A against Denver in week three. week three. He did allow a pressure to Billings where he got uh, pancaked, actually, on the play. Uh, he missed three blocks. Uh, one was relatively innocuous, missed pull. That's, a, that's kind of a low-cost low miss, though they all count as zero score. And an, he was overwhelmed twice physically when the ball was either out quickly uh, or, uh, or was a run play that went for a gain anyway. So, uh, again, none of those three really end up costing the Ravens. Two of those three are bad indicators. But uh, his overall play was excellent, .92 in terms of a raw score, uh, an A after adjustment, uh, and, again, his best game of the year. All right. Uh, Marshall Yama came out with the media this morning to say that he would never spit on another player, never has, uh, never will. Uh, clearly, that's been all the news about Marshall Yama the past couple of days and the, the video of, uh, of him in perfect. How did Yama actually play, though, in the game? Yeah, Yama had his worst game of the year. And so he, he had a bunch of different problems. Now, part of it is Yanda's most difficult opponent and the, and the player he's had the most trouble with by far over the years is Geno Atkins. Okay. It's just it, he plays him twice per year. Geno's one hell of a player, and, and it's the one guy in the whole league that Yanda's had by far the most trouble with. This was a game where, where it wasn't that much different. Yanda also had some trouble with Billings, number 99, if you look at the, look at the film, who, who had a fine game himself. And he he did some things well, but he did some other things that were not not that great. Uh, he, he allowed the penetration by Billings to take down. I'm sorry, the penetration by Atkins to take down Jackson for the loss of two when the Ravens had a chance to, to really improve their situation to 28-21 instead of the 24-21 they settled for after Tucker's field goal. So they had that, that, that was a play down on about the four or five yard line. Um, uh, on third down. So it looked like Jackson had a clear path to the end zone, but uh, Atkins tripped him up because Yonda um, was beaten on the play. He, he had a hand in each of the two sacks. Uh, and admittedly, Yonda played pretty well uh, in general. I didn't think he deserved uh, any more than half charge for either of those sacks, but he had a half and a third, as I saw it, on the two plays. Uh, not his best game. He wasn't penalized. He almost never is. But he did miss seven blocks in total on the game. 0.71 per play after adjustment at guard. He fits in at the bottom of the C range. So, uh, you know, a Hall of Fame player having an off game against a top opponent. Not not huge news. And it's great that the rest of the line played well and really picked him up in this one. All right. Uh, let's get to Orlando Brown. We've talked before about how he's a downfield lineman. And uh, 
I mean, he seems like the right guy in front of Jackson. So, yeah, so some things about Orlando that were kind of funny in this game. First of all, he had nine blocks in level two. So that speaks to your point there is that he's really been more mobile than I think any scouts ever gave him credit for in, in terms of his ability to connect in level two. And he's looking now like he's less lost in space. So when he goes to level two, it's not like he can't figure out who he's supposed to block as it did look in the first week. So, you know, actually not week one against Buffalo. I merely mean his first start. So anyway, he made 9 of 14 blocks in level 2, and that's a high total for a tackle. Tackles often get caught in level 2 on the backside of a run play and unable to find a good block to make. Uh, you know, Orlando making 9 out of 14, I'm, I'm very happy with. Um, he delivered two pancakes. He had two nice highlight com- combination blocks. Uh, very little bad to say about it other than he was party to both sacks. Those were his only pressure events. The first, he let Dunlap make the initial... Uh, flush on Jackson for for half a sack, and then he got a sixth of a sack when he had an odd release downfield on the second sack. And that play, I think he would have been flagged for illegal man downfield or ineligible receiver downfield, I should say, um, if the if Jackson had got off the the pass. But it looked like he was anticipating a, a quarterback run or a screen pass on the play because he's five yards downfield between the hashes as Jackson is being sacked on the play. And I, I, there's a picture out of it on, on RSR that I that I put in, but it's actually a funny position for him to be in. It just it looks like he was expecting either a screen or a quarterback run. All anyway, right. a, a for Brown, his best game as a pro to date. That's great. That's exciting to see rookies uh, play well and start to shine. Uh, we did see Illuminor and Bozeman a little bit on Sunday. I want to talk yeah, briefly about Bozeman. He entered for three plays. And normally, you know, hope, you just hope to make your blocks – Bozeman made the most of this opportunity. Three blocks. The the fir- the second sorry the third block he made that was scored was on the touchdown run by Edwards at Q three one oh seven. He made a he made a fine block on that way to keep Dunlap engaged. It kept Dunlap from making a tackle and he was in the best position to do so. Fine block by Bozeman. He followed it up with an unscored highlight seal on that two point conversion and he actually uh, is blocking two players. From getting in the play, both Billing, Billings and Nickerson, he's holding off on the left edge as Edwards runs right by him through the clear for the easy two-point conversion. So it looked easy because Bradley made it easy on that play, unscored play. But if this were a game where he had other snaps, I'd give him a big uh, positive subjective adjust- adjustment for that block in particular. And Illuminor came in eight snaps, made seven blocks. Uh, he came in three separate occasions, and he held the fort while while Stanley was out. So, you know, solid play again from Illuminor and Ravens offensive line, top to bottom. It's hard to really find any warts on this game. So, fine game. Yonda's performance would be the only thing I'd point to as as it didn't really work out. All right, that's good. Um, always good to have a solid line. Let's get to the, the MVPs for Sunday. Okay, so I'll, I'll go three to one. I don't know if you want to participate too, but uh, I'll start. I've got some guys here. Oh, okay. Let's I'm all do set. That. Okay, so number three, I, I have Ronnie Stanley. I thought of the individual linemen, his play and of the adverse circumstances with the injury and whatnot really earned him the number three star. All right, I've got Justin Tucker. Um, I think he could be the MVP every week, but it's so nice when watching the Ravens football that we don't have to have the concerns the rest of the NFL has. Right, now, the, the, Justin Tucker now, if you want to express, I don't know if we did this on the last show, but we're going to do it again anyway. He's made 21 consecutive field goals from 50 through 57 yards, the longest streak in NFL history. Uh, Matt Bryant, who the Ravens will face in two weeks, has an active 17-kick streak as well, including the playoffs. So that'll that'll have an interesting subcontext with it. Now, the other the stat is that Tucker has made 98 consecutive field goals when you exclude blocks and only consider kicks of 57 or fewer yards. So among unblocked attempts from 57 or fewer yards, Justin Tucker has made 98 straight field goals. Yeah, that's, That is just amazing. That's awesome. Uh, especially it was highlighted this week when the Bengals went for a field goal to tie it and fell way short. Yeah, that's right. So it was, it was 52 yards wide right. I mean, that is chip shot Tucker range. And uh, and they they didn't make it happen. So uh, it was a big difference in that game. So my number two guy is uh, Edwards. He's number two for me. Uh, Can't argue with that. You're going with him, too. Uh, No, I'm going to throw Chris Moore in as the number two because uh, for one catch, Mm -hmm. that that one uh, ball that was thrown behind him that he pulled in. So I'm going to give him a little a little credit right there. 
Okay, but f- fair enough to get some love for Chris Moore. He certainly has earned more snaps. Uh, the, the Ravens can't seem to get snaps for Chris Moore, which means they can't seem to figure out how to get off the free agent wide receiver treadmill. They're never going to get snaps for Jordan Lasley if they can't get for Chris Moore. So I, I agree that uh, Moore deserves some recognition in a, in a season he's having that, where he's caught the ball very effectively. Right. My number one is Jackson. Uh, I, I think he'd be hard to, to go with anybody else. Uh, he had tremendous poise in getting the Ravens through this game. He did what was necessary to win. He will never, ever rush the ball 27 times again. But in doing so, he won this game for the Ravens. Uh, and and meshed extremely well with Edwards' style as well. Right. Clearly, your top three are the real stars of the game. Uh, I just can't pick the same guys as you. So I'm giving it to Marvin Lewis because I don't understand why he's still a head coach, and I love that he was trying. Well, he was calling the defense against us on Sunday because there was no adjustment. That's that's a great thing, and I love your style of doing it anyway. It wouldn't do it. Wouldn't do the show a lot of good if we just had yeah the same uh, number one, yeah the same number two, and different number three. So. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, we haven't had any cats on the field yet or anything this, this year, so. <laughs> I've got to actually pick guys who touch the grass a little bit. There you go. So, all right, Ken, uh, let's get to a little bit of mailbag before we get out for our Thanksgiving break. Um, And let's see. Let's go with, other than the poor rushing yards per attempt, how does the offensive line compare to last year's 2017? And how does Skura at center compare to Jensen? Okay, well, if you look at PFF, Skura and Jensen are very similarly rated this season. So I, I, you know, we I have some differences in view of how PFF handles their scoring. But one of the things is they tend to rate down a player like Skura, who makes makes and holds a lot of run blocks without winning them by moving the by moving the opposing player. So they would tend to really rate down Skura. But Skura's in the middle of the pack of centers, and so is Jensen. Um, and so obviously Skura being tremendously cheaper uh, would seem to be the better deal. Now I, I honestly believe that Jensen has more. Um, uh, value as a player than than probably what he's shown, and certainly more upside than, than what uh, what Skura has as a player. So I'm not completely convinced on on that. But uh, I also haven't watched Jensen's games this year to see what's actually gone wrong with his blocking. But uh, yeah, the offensive line in general. To answer your other question, uh, there's a lot to be excited about on this offensive line. It's a it's a fairly young line with some players coming out of this game that look a lot better than they did before. And we mentioned on the offensive evaluations they really had to sift through five guys who are kind of backup talent to decide which ones they want to keep going forward and then maybe also draft an offensive lineman and those five guys include uh lewis bozeman illuminor skura and siragusa and and now you know with with good games from several of them this week you know it's going to make that that decision-making process all the harder and that's a great problem to have right. uh, there will be offensive line injuries next year next year i'd expect the ravens will carry nine on the offensive line given the depth they have and given the likelihood that they have a draft pick as well all right uh should the ravens consider using more two tight end slots since we've got a bunch of tight ends that have shown a little bit of promise okay great point great question love that um, probably the answer is they're going to skip between using some some ones and some twos and some threes. But I think a lot of their running packages now with Jackson and with Edwards are going to try and take advantage of running against the nickel. So to run against the nickel, they need to put three wide receivers on the field. That puts an extra cornerback on the field. It puts one less defensive lineman on the field. And then you rely more on the elusiveness of Jackson and the straight-ahead power of Edwards to get your run advantages. And I actually think it's better to use one tight end um, and one running back among your five eligible receivers in those situations because I think you, 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 you do better to spread the defense out for, for those two very complementary running styles. All right. Um, a quick defense question. How do we sometimes seem to have such a dominant pass rush and other times look completely inept? Yeah, I mean, the four-week stretch of not getting – not getting home with the pass rush is really uh, troublesome. Part of it is injuries. Obviously, missing Willie Henry and missing Tim Williams is a big deal. Willie Henry is probably the bigger loss because he's he's being replaced by another inside pass rusher that's just probably not as skilled and not as able to create some good opportunities via um, uh, stunts and twists. So I like uh, you know, I like the fact that they're still among the leaders in sacks, despite what's gone on. I don't like the fact that they've now got three sacks in four weeks and what that really means about where they are. I, I think the secondary is, is really doing their part to hold up. Uh, a little part of it is schematic that, that, uh, 
Uh, Martindale has throttled back on the pass rush deception and throttled back on the numbers in the pass rush these last four weeks because of the better quarterbacks they've been facing. So, you know, some of it is that, but but I, I would not, I would be the first to agree with you that, that the pass rush has been, uh, you know, MIA the last four weeks in terms of winning as many one-on-one matchups as they did earlier in the year. Gotcha. All right, and a uh, quick reminder that you can get in your questions using the hashtag film study mailbag on Twitter. Uh, ne- final question for you this week. After Lamar's first game, what do we look for in uh, the next game against the Raiders to see Lamar progressing and growing and how the team's using him? What should we watch for? Right, well, I, I think the first thing, first and foremost, they're going to have to find how to run the running game with less Lamar. So I think they, they should try and get down to, you know, a dozen carries for Lamar might be a reasonable goal in his second game. Use Edwards more, use Collins maybe more for the outside uh, instead of Lamar. Uh, but, uh, you know, the other thing I, I, I want to see whether or not it it the situation develops with, is another question is for him to just do more passing from the pocket. So make use of the pocket, show better awareness of how the pocket is holding up and don't um, uh, compromise the pocket personally. Uh, you know, use the pocket that, that exists there as, as well as he can. Joe Flacco is very good at that. He stays in the pocket for as long as possible, oftentimes until he gets sacked. Lamar will probably avoid some sacks by staying in the pocket longer. He'll also make some plays when he tries to evade the pocket and get outside, as we saw in this game, the, the, the on the under pressure numbers, the without ATS numbers were terrific for Lamar. I'd love to see that continue. I don't expect it will. So I, I just say more of a regression towards a normal NFL quarterback style with fewer runs and more passes from the pocket is what I'd like to see from Lamar. All right. So if you're the Ravens this week, what you're looking for is you're, try, you're practicing uh, getting him comfortable in that pocket and forcing him to stay in that pocket for practice. Yeah, there you go. That that question from Joe in Rockville. Thanks, thanks, Joe. All right, um, all right, Ken. Let's uh, let's let people know what's up on Russell Street because you've been busy this week. You got the offensive breakdown that uh, that we just kind of went through. You've got the defensive breakdown that you always do, and you also have this tiebreaker article up there. So yeah, three three articles out there. If you want a little more detail on what's going on, you can you can look there and follow some individual plays and get the quarter and time references for things. See if I'm full of crap on what I'm saying about the. Uh, about individual plays, see if you agree. Um, follow me on Twitter at Film Study Ravens. I'm very active there during the day. Love to hear from you. Love to get good discussions started about football. Uh, tossing your questions, I try and respond to every single one. Although I don't always do it immediately, I, I, I will try and get to every single question uh, posed. If you have a comment and you want to make it with an at Film Study Ravens, that's cool too. You get the rest of the Baltimore analyst community largely involved in that discussion uh, very quickly. So. Uh, it, Happy to have it, and uh, tell us about Birdland Sports. Yeah, everything is fixed with hosting, I think. That's the big news for Birdland Sports and Film Study and Section 336. Uh, go over to Section 336 and uh, listen to that. Listen to us get excited for Mike Elias now that he is the Orioles GM. And I'm sure um, they just announced today that Sigma, Sig, I'm just going to go with because I don't know how to pronounce the last <laughs> name yet, and I know I'll get it wrong who is the analytics head from the Astros, who recently left the Astros, is now joining Elias in Baltimore. So that's as the assistant GM. So that's big news. So I'm sure we'll either have a quick mini episode of 336 soon to discuss that, or we'll at least be discussing it on Monday. All right. I'm I'm really excited to see how that plays out, because the, the organization in the 1970s when I grew up was so clued in to the early levels of sabermetrics, even though they didn't call them those at the time where they really understood the value of the walk in particular and built the franchise around it. I'm really excited to see Elias and his number two uh, rebuild the Orioles' dedication to the walk. It's really exciting because we're not trying – it's not a copycat move. We're bringing guys who are who are creating new things. I think when you think of the Houston Astros, you think of pitchers who go there and you would hear about the spin rate, and suddenly they're a better pitcher because of the spin rate. No one else was doing that before Houston. Huh. And that's these guys, and they're now in Baltimore, not to copycat what the Astros are doing, but to continue to advance analytics in baseball, and specifically in Baltimore. But it's also very important to remind people it's a long-term move. It doesn't mean we're winning the World Series next year. Let's look at five, six years and see what goes down. Well, it's it's a great move to get a 35-year-old GM if you really believe in him because you could have him for 25 years. Yes. I mean, you, oh, it's a— 
they, could be the fixture in Baltimore baseball for, for a quarter century if, if things really worked out. Right. They're being very clear on, about not saying how long his contract is. And the, the truth is, you're right, it could go on forever. So, all right, Ken. Well, have a great Thanksgiving. Enjoy the Raiders game on Sunday. All right, take it easy, Josh. We're your go-to for great gardening values every day. That's why we've lowered our price on select bagged mulch. Now starting at just $2.88 a bag. Mulch helps prevent weeds and retains moisture. And when you put it down around trees, shrubs, and flower beds, you'll see how beautiful it makes your outdoor space. Just in time to welcome back family and friends. Shop online and pick up in store. Lowe's, home to the best part of summer. Selection and product availability vary by location. While supplies last, U.S. only. Excludes Alaska and Hawaii. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.